Hi, I'm James Verdier, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. For today's episode, I was joined by three excellent guests. They are Thomas Meinzen, a recent Master's of Science graduate from Montana State University in Bozeman, Diane Dubinsky, who's a professor and department head in the Department of Ecology at MSU, and Laura Burkle, a professor also in the MSU Ecology Department. They were here to talk about something that most of us see every day but rarely think about, those narrow swaths of cleared land that are on the sides of roadways, and in particular, the way that those roadside habitats may be helpful or harmful for pollinating insects. Let's go to the interview. Thank you all very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Okay, great. So we're going to be talking today about, uh, you know, roadside habitat, um, and in particular, its relationship with pollinators. Uh, so, you know, I, I think we're all familiar with occasionally seeing some wildflowers on the side of a, you know, highway or something like that. But if you could just tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what are these habitats like and, you know, where do they exist and, and those sorts of things. So road bridges occur um, worldwide, just like roads. And they occur around roads primarily for safety purposes um, to increase visibility for drivers. And also, if drivers run off the road, um, then they are not running instantly into trees or things like that. And so they're often kept free from larger vegetation, woody vegetation, and thus they tend to have a lot of grass, um, forbs, or wildflowers. So they can be really um, potentially attractive areas for pollinators. Um, they vary in width and size depending upon um, the type of road. So often highways, large highways have really wide road verges um, and smaller roads tend to have less space. But they're often owned um, publicly, so by state transportation departments or counties, um, and they're not developed. So they're not planted with specific um, crops or paved over or anything like that. And thus, um, they can be reservoirs of, of plant diversity because they're not as tightly managed or developed as other areas in the surrounding landscape. And this can potentially make them valuable areas for pollinators. Okay. And, you know, I'm wondering now um, about how pollinators fit into all of this. Of course, you know, you have plants, you're likely to have pollinators, et cetera. Um, but, you know, what's their relationship sort of broadly speaking like with these habitats? Yeah. So... Um, roadsides are often host to quite a variety of pollinators, um, bees, butterflies, um, moths, beetles, um, flies as well. And um, they often come into the space looking for forage, so looking for food, nectar, and pollen. Um, um, they may use it to reproduce as well, um, although that's not very well documented at this point. Um, and then they may be moving along roadsides as well because these are areas often that contain these lawn strips of, of flowers. Um, they may be moving between areas along roadsides. That again is something that's been sort of widely um, talked about, but there's not that much evidence yet for that. So we still have a lot to learn about how pollinators use and move through roadside spaces. So let's chat a little bit more about how these sorts of, you know, verges work for the pollinator species. You know, is it, you know, sort of an unalloyed good? I suspect not. In what ways do these affect pollinators? Are they, um, do they struggle in these spaces? Are they, you know, going into them and getting stuck? What, what kinds of things are happening? That's a great question. And that's kind of this big central focus of our paper is trying to 
um, understand by looking at the all the literature that's out there. Um, what what are these spaces really doing for pollinators? We we know that pollinators are using them, um, and in, in my work, I've been doing surveys along roadsides and finding uh, you know big diversity of bees and butterflies using these spaces. But we don't necessarily have a great understanding of how they're contributing to the population level impacts. Um, so when a when a pollinator moves into one of these spaces, uh, we don't know if their survivorship and their rate of reproduction is higher or lower than it would be in other landscapes. And that's a really important component because if their survivorship and their reproduction rates are lower, then these um, verges might actually be a population sink. So they might actually be pulling pollinators in and causing them to have these lower vital rates and thus having a negative impact on their populations. In general, though, we expect that they're coming in, they're foraging on, on flowers, and we hope that they are keeping to these road verges and not crossing the road because that's where the, the biggest mortality occurs. However, there's also other dangers uh, in roadsides, um, particularly from mowing um, and herbicide spraying, which occurs really frequently in order to manage these areas um, to keep them clear and also um, state mandates to control noxious weeds. So when a pollinator comes into a roadside, it's certainly entering a dangerous zone. And there might be a, um, a lot of reward in terms of available nectar and pollen and even nest sites, um, but it's not without its potential cost. Um, when pollinators use roadsides, they could be using the roadsides for a nectar source or pollen source. Uh, they could also be looking for a plant on which they would lay their eggs. So for butterflies, there are a lot of specific relationships between the butterfly species and the plant species. So for example, one butterfly species uh, might only lay its eggs on a violet and another butterfly species might only lay its eggs on a milkweed. So the butterflies, as they come through these areas, could be nectaring on flowers and getting that resource, but they could also be searching for a place to lay an egg. Uh, and I could let Laura chime in about the bees. Uh, but so there, there are two different reasons for uh, potentially an asset to a pollinator. Uh, and the two main things for butterflies would be um, a place to lay an egg if there's the appropriate plant. And then secondly, a place to uh, collect some nectar. Yeah, to elaborate on both of that, um, <clears throat> what Thomas and, and Diane was saying, one thing that struck me about what you said, Thomas, was that when they come into the roadside, and I, just to highlight, we don't even know if they're they're coming in from somewhere else always, or if they were born there. You know, if they're using that space for their whole lives, um, and so that's something about use that we'd really like to know. Um, for bees, yeah, they, the roadsides could be this nice open space, um, open ground where ground nesting bees could use, um, if, especially if the vegetation is really short, that could be a, a great place for um, ground nesting bees to lay their, their eggs in the ground. Um, but not all bees are, you know, use their, use the ground for nesting. Um, and so it wouldn't be a good place for, say, a, a wood nesting or a cavity nesting uh, bee unless there's also trees in that area, which is pretty rare, um, especially along interstates. But uh, yeah, bees are using 
potentially using that space for both nesting and um, and finding floral resources like like nectar and pollen. And is there any downside for you know, for instance, a, a bee to live in you know sort of sort of a, a narrow and long corridor of habitat rather than you know um, what I would imagine, which is sort of a you know a, a radius extending from a central location? Um, do we know anything about you know how they how they do in those types of places? Certainly, um, it it would affect bees, and particularly um, some of the larger bees that have larger home ranges um, would be potentially detrimentally affected by only having this long corridor. Some of the bees uh, um, in North America are very small and, and as a result have pretty small home ranges. And so there actually might be some that in the wider road verges, they could have a, a radial sort of habitat and still be within the road verge. Um, bigger ones like bumblebees um, would be traveling a lot farther. And of course it would increase their, their energy um, use if they had to only travel in two directions instead of being able to go in radius because they are these central place foragers going going back and forth from from a nest. Um, beyond that, I think a big concern as well is the, the chemical effects um, and the concerns about pollutants from traffic, um, heavy metals um, coming off of vehicles, also from the, the road surface getting into the soil on the roadsides and potentially negatively impacting ground nesting bees. Um, that's really been pretty um, understudied. And so right now it, we kind of have to act with precaution, I think, and, and we don't know too much about those concerns, but we do know that there's, um, there's a lot of, of heavy metals um, and other elements that have been shown to affect bees negatively. Most of the studies have been with honeybees, um, and they are at pretty high concentrations in roadside soils. And so that that is a concern. And and as with many dangers on roadsides, that occurs in a gradient um, going out from the road surface. So right next to the road would be a really dangerous zone. And then if, as you get farther and farther, um, those chemicals and also the risks of collision um, should be decreasing. So as kind of connected to this, we we really advise that if um, pollinator plantains are occurring, that they be occurring farthest from the road surface, so in the areas kind of closest to that fence line, um, rather than rather than close by. Right. And you mentioned vehicle strikes, and that was something that was, you know, interesting to me because I, I, I don't typically think of roadkill as being anything other than, you know, bird squirrels and uh, the occasional deer. Um, is that a major source of mortality for pollinators that are in these areas? It absolutely is. Yeah. Um, certainly billions of insects killed every year um, in much higher numbers than, than, you know, birds or squirrels. It's, of course, less obvious to us, but... Um, but yeah, there's been um, quite a few studies on that, and the rates are pretty alarming. Um, they, the, the studies do suggest that it's still a fraction of the total insects that might be using the roadsides, but it is a really high number. And in fact, um, kind of, um, it's kind of interesting that some of the more um, reliable potentially data we have are just based on collecting insects off of vehicles and noticing that now there are far fewer insects being hit um, by vehicles than there used to be, which is kind of a crazy metric for 
paying attention to insect population decline, but it, but and kind of illuminates how little we know about insects and their populations in general. That that we are using, you know, such coarse methods as um, what you know what piles up on a grill on a windshield. Um, but it is something that's um, people are really noticing. Um, I've heard stories about people like, oh yeah, I used to you know be driving and there's you know my windshield be covered with insects, and now there's very few. Um, and that's not because insects are no longer getting hit. It's rather because there are fewer insects to be hit. And you know, I'm I'm wondering also about um, you mentioned herbicides. Does road salt play a role as well? We we recently ran a feature about road salt, so it's sort of on my mind. Absolutely, yes, um, yeah, and that's a really interesting one um, because sodium has really complex um, role in the development of um, invertebrate bodies. So. Um, there's been some interesting studies on the impacts of road salt with monarch butterflies specifically, and they found that slightly higher sodium concentrations can actually have potential positive physiological benefits um, for monarchs. Uh, for females, I think they can produce larger eyes um, and potentially larger wing muscles, but at higher levels, of course, it's toxic. Um, and in many cases where road salt is being applied in winter, the, the soil and potentially the plants as well growing along the roadsides actually would be at toxic levels. Um, there's also been a study that's found that, that monarchs aren't able to detect that when they're laying their eggs. So they could be laying their eggs on milkweed plants that are actually toxic to the caterpillars. Um, so that's, that's one good reason to keep um, a clear zone, of, you know, really short moan area right next to the roadside so that really toxic zone um doesn't have plants growing in it that it's going to be attractive to the bees and butterflies i was hoping you could talk uh, just a little bit about you know we've, we've mentioned some of the the potentially troublesome aspects of roadside habitats um and i want to get into you know the potential maybe for them to be you know sort of corridors etc in a little bit um, but i wanted to explore the idea of a potential ecological trap it's mentioned in the article and it was something that i found interesting so um can you tell us a little bit about what that means in this context yeah absolutely so um, an ecological trap is an area that um, might be attractive to um, uh, organism, um, either it for, could be for various reasons, but it looks like good habitat to them. Um, but in fact, in that habitat, their um, survivorship or their reproduction rates or both are lower than they would be in other habitats, and they're lower than replacement. So basically, if you imagine um, say in this case, bees are coming into roadsides, they have plenty of flowers, so they look good. So they pull in immigrants from the rest of um, the area into these roadside habitats. But then the bees that are there are either being killed, maybe by traffic at higher rates, or when they lay their eggs, um, their eggs aren't hatching, or they um, are getting killed by mowers. Um, there could be various reasons for the, for those rates to decline, but if they aren't um, surviving and reproducing above sort of replacement, replacing the, the parents, then actually they're pulling from that population and they're leading to um, a decline in the whole population. So it might be good for a certain individual bees who find lots of forage, but on a population level, it's actually causing um, the population to decline. 
Um, there can be some really complicated metapopulation dynamics with, with ecological traps, but the idea is that it might be attractive to the animal, um, but actually disadvantage them. And so that's a big concern because, of course, we don't want to be um, planting flowers and increasing sort of um, the number of immigrants of pollinators into roadsides if they are, in fact, an ecological trap. I guess I'll just say that um, it depends a lot on what is nearby, right? So if you imagine the roadside as being this really flowery, wonderful looking place, um, how how it appears to a pollinator is going to really depend on what's on the other side of that fence line. If it's a big potato field in Idaho or something where, where Thomas was working, um, yeah, that roadside might look wonderful. Um, but if on the other side of that fence line is a natural sagebrush habitat, um, then they, they might not be as likely to get lured into, um, into one of these roadside um, plantings or, or, um, or areas. Right. And I, I want to talk about that, you know, habitat corridor question in a moment. Uh, but before we do, I think, you know, you, you raised something that interests me, which is, um, you know, how do you, how is this studied? Um, you know, what kind of methods do you do? You know, how much of this is in the field? Are you in a position where you're forced to draw together material from a lot of disparate fields? How does an article like this one kind of come together? You know, what sorts of sources, what sorts of field work? How does it all happen? Yeah. So, um, this is a, this is a review article. So it's really based on the work of, um, honestly, hundreds of other scientists that have been um, trying to answer these questions and work in this field for for a long time. Um, and particularly in recent years, there's just been a lot of attention to roadsides and to pollinators. So it's an exciting time to be um, in this field and to be um, kind of, yeah, learning about uh, the research that's coming out. Um, for my master's, I was working um, in the field in Idaho um doing roadside surveys for bees and butterflies and plants um and that helped me get, get a lot of sort of on the ground context um, as well as working with the department of transportation there to kind of understand the challenges that they face and hopefully tailor the recommendations that we gave in our paper to be things that will be useful and practical um, to to these managers um, i think sometimes it can be easy to to get out there and see, um, oh, well, this should just be done this way. But then when you look at the, the challenges and the mandates that they, that these uh, managers are under and facing, then it, um, it gets more complicated for sure. One, one example of this is that people who are actually doing the roadside management, like mowing and spraying, that's for the most part, that's their, that's their entire job. And so to say, oh, don't mow, don't spray, uh, kind of goes against um, their they're sort of what what they're paid to do and what they came into their job to do and so i think it's important that a lot of these sort of ideas that scientists are finding um are actually trickling down to the people who are on the ground doing the management um, and i hope that with this paper we could synthesize a lot of the different research that's going on in this area and then provide some useful and practical application of it thinking about okay if i'm if I'm, you know, a manager of these habitats, what should I be doing given what we know now, especially given the fact that there's a lot of questions that are still out there. 
I just wanted to follow up to say uh, the, the review process for this paper helped add additional dimensions that we had not covered as well as we thought we had uh, at the beginning. Uh, so one of the reviewers suggested that we think about this from more of an international perspective. And so the three of us are from the US and have spent most of our time in the US and we envision roadsides and think about them from that perspective. But one of the reviewers said, uh, you know, well, some in some countries, people plant crops in roadsides or in other countries, there might be a lot of trees in the roadsides. So we did step back uh, from the first version of the paper and try to incorporate more international perspectives so that the commentary that we were making had a broader set of um, apl applicability uh, internationally. And so that was that was helpful for us, but also in terms of thinking about what are roadsides and what are road verges and how do people manage them and what actually occurs in them. Uh, it, was, it was helpful to take that uh, step back and, and think about it from a broader perspective. Yeah, I think that raises an interesting question, which is, you know, at what level and, and by whom, um, you know, are the decisions about you know, roadside habitat management made. Uh, you know, I, I think that most of us who are driving past are simply seeing, uh, you know, folks in high-vis vests with potentially mowers or weed eaters and things like that. But, you know, who's actually making the call on, you know, what happens, what areas are cleared, how frequently they're mown, things like that? Well, that certainly varies by country. And so sure. I we're all in the United States. And so couldn't speak to that very well in other countries, but here in the US, um, most of the decision making happens at the state level by state departments of transportation or DOTs. However, um, the federal government does have an impact in Congress in terms of the funding that's available. So as an example, the, the infrastructure bill was passed in 2021, had uh, millions of dollars set aside for expanding pollinator habitat in roadsides and rights of way. And so that those funds, you know, affect um, who can be hired at the state level and what kinds of work they can do. Um, and of course, there are also are federal mandates, particularly with the interstate um, program for how those should be managed. Um, but most of the decision making happens at the state level within these DOTs. And I would say a, a follow up is that it can even vary significantly among counties within a state how roadsides are managed. And uh, in living in the Midwest, there's there's a roadside manager for every single county in Iowa. There are 99 counties. And uh, particular roadside managers might be really interested in prairie restoration. And what I saw was that there were particular counties that uh, people had taken uh, the initiative to try to reseed these roadsides to prairie habitat and prairie vegetation. So it was highly variable based upon the funding and the individuals involved and the priorities in those local areas, how roadsides could be managed. And I would I'd add to that too, that specifically the state DOT is managed more of the highways and then the smaller roads are more county county managed and it would vary by state too. And an example, we worked with someone in Idaho who was really enthusiastic about pollinators in the state transportation department which is part of the reason why we were able to do all this work um, and it's huge. So it does you know, often come down to individuals who are enthusiastic about pollinators. And so we, we wanna you know, recognize and uplift those individuals. 
Yeah, absolutely. And let's chat a little bit about, you know, um, what those individuals might be able to create in terms of advantages for pollinators, uh, you know, sustaining the health of populations, uh, providing habitat quarters. What's the sort of, you know, best case scenario? What can you get out of a, you know, really well-managed roadside verge? Yeah. Um, well, ideally, you can have a verge where those kind of dangers um, to pollinators are minimized and potentially the rewards might be maximized. But I think that at this point, because we don't know that much about how, to what extent roadsides are an ecological trap, it's actually more important that we focus on minimizing the dangers. So rather than trying to bring in more pollinators to roadsides, we want to think about how to make those roadsides that already contain a lot of pollinators safer for them. So um, management has a big role in that. Um, we encourage um, for example, mowing to not occur during the summer um, and not during the growing season when pollinators are going to be most active out there using it, but rather trying to mow um, very early or late in the season and generally as little as um, possible. Also, herbicide use. Um, right now, there's just a ton of herbicide use in roadsides in most areas. Um, and in general, um, there's probably more than there needs to be. Um, for for the management to occur. So um, we encourage spot treating, so just specifically spraying noxious weeds um, rather than doing any kind of blanket spraying. And again, doing that, trying to do that early while weeds are still at their rosette stage before they have flowers. Um, another component um, that's important is trying to maintain um, a clear zone, and that really overlaps with the, the safety mandate for a lot of DOTs. So maintain this zone right next to the pavement really short so it doesn't attract pollinators into that kind of high danger area. And then leave the area that's closer to the fence line farther from the road surface. Um, let that go longer. So you're encouraging pollinators to use areas that are farther from the road. There's been a little bit um, of potential um, interesting results suggesting, including actually some of what Diane's worked on in Iowa, suggesting that better habitat um, along roadsides, more diverse flowers might encourage pollinators not to leave those roadsides and cross the road. So that's really encouraging. I, I think that question needs to be pursued with more studies. But ideally, um, if we can have um, good quality, native, diverse plantings, at the far edge from the road surface, then we can encourage pollinators to use um, that habitat and stay away from the, the dangerous road area. Okay, great. So I guess my last or nearly last question might be something along the lines of, you know, what's next for this research? Um, and if, if not, you know, your personal research, what would you like to see done? What are the areas of, you know, most upcoming interest and, um, you know, concern and potential? Yeah, I think getting back to the question of what happens in the roadsides from the perspective of birth and death of particular species of pollinators is really a key. And it would be very difficult to look at the whole community of butterflies or the whole community of bees living in a roadside. So it would be best to focus on a, a few individual species for which we could get lots of data and look at uh, the reproduction that happens in the roadsides and compare that to what's happening in a similar kind of vegetation community that's not a roadside. Um, and then also looking at the, the mortality rates. So to be able to better quantify reproduction and mortality 
for a subset of the species of, say, butterflies and bees uh, in roadsides compared to similar habitat that's a similar size, a similar composition of vegetation that's not a roadside. So it could be potentially a buffer zone along uh, a creek or a river. It could be uh, a little habitat patch that's linear uh, that has a similar kind of vegetation community. And it's, sometimes it's hard to find these things on the landscape, but I think we have the potential to even design them and create our own landscape designs to test these kinds of hypotheses. To add on to that, I think it's it's really interesting to get at use versus benefit. And Thomas really highlighted this um, in the paper. Um, so I think we're also really interested in movement. Um, so there's some cool techniques you can use, at least for bees, um, that are called window pane traps. Um, and so you can, it's like a clear um, window um, that you can orient in different directions uh, and, and see which insects are heading in which directions. Um, are they crossing the road? Are they uh, coming from somewhere else versus emerging at a particular place, uh, like within the roadside? Um, so that's one technique. Uh, you could also use something called emergence traps. So placing these little tents over the ground and you can see which bees are using um, the ground in a roadside versus land just adjacent to the roadside that's not um, not part of that that area and see where, where bees are nesting. Uh, that wouldn't work as well for butterflies. But um, to add on to what Diane was saying, like in addition to reproduction, birth and death, thinking about movement um, and use of these places versus um, whether or not they're, they're reproducing there, uh, benefiting um, compared to nearby areas. I would also add one more piece that I'm really interested in is trying to assess how roadside habitat restoration, like including plantings, affects the rate of collision mortality on roads. So if, if, you, if you do a, you know, a nice pollinator planting along the side of a road, is there more or less um, rate of collision before and after? Um, so that, that's a challenging thing to answer, but I think it's really important given that there's you know, millions of dollars now earmarked for roadside pollinator restoration. We wanna know, you know should, should that be spent on, on plantings um, or if, if we plant, are there gonna be higher levels of collision? And so actually we should focus all of that just on um, you know, education, um, and particularly changing the way that we mow and spray roadsides. Um, so that's one more question that I would love to investigate and, and hope that other scientists do as well. Great. That's fascinating. And I think this is an area to which we should all stay tuned as long as we can. Um, thank you very much for joining me today. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.